Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm here solo today as far as positive energy folks are concerned, uh, podcast-wise. But I am happy, truly happy, and truly honored to have Paula Baker-Laporte here today to talk with us about healthy homes. This is a subject she knows well. She has literally written the book, and I could say the book, but it'd be actually more accurate to say the books. Um, Paula doesn't know this actually. I'm, this is the first time you've heard this, Paula. I first met you in 2001 or two, I think, when I read the first edition of your book. Um, so I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself, uh, but I want to talk quickly about the book. So as a building science consultant, I get to think about enclosure systems and mechanical systems, and I have long been interested in, I guess you could call it the overlap of the building sciences and the health sciences. And it's a broadening, rapidly and deepening subject that I try to stay on top of. And your book has helped me so much. Like I had a kind of a perspective on it and you really helped like depixelate it. So from the heart, kudos. Thank you. This book is impressive and evolving. With that as a a quick introduction to the book, let's meet you because this book wouldn't exist without you. I guess first, how would you like to be introduced? Please introduce yourselves to the audience and welcome. Thank you, and thanks for that warm introduction. As you know, my name is Paula. I'm a career architect, meaning I graduated from architecture school in 1978. And it has been a central focus for me for my entire career. I'm just doing the math on that 22 plus 23, that's 45 years ago. That's been a minute. Yeah, Um, and just to take the mystery out of the numbers, that was, I was 25 at that time. So. I just turned 70. Yay! Um, amazing 70 years to me. young. Yeah. And uh, as an architect, you know, I learned a lot about how to make space and how to make the experience of being in space, indoors, beautiful. But no one ever taught me that the walls, the surrounding, what that envelope was mattered. And when I was a young architect, I moved into a brand new building that was full of formaldehyde and it changed everything for me Mm -hmm. because I suddenly realized the interrelationship between our built environment and our health. So um, that turned out to be a a painful blessing in disguise. And I've spent the rest of my career piecing it together. So with the goal of it, that never happening to anyone else ever again. And, um, we keep learning, so yeah. we keep rewriting a book. Uh, if you compared the book you have now with the original book written over 20 years ago, only the title remains yeah. and the content really has grown and changed and stretched and uh, building science came of age and we had a whole new tool for how we might understand buildings. And we've found new tools of how to explore the toxicity of things and uh, we've created new problems, yeah. electromagnetics and mold. So here we are all those years later, and I'm very happy to be on your show. I'm very happy to be speaking with um, 
maybe a more building science oriented crowd as well. Yeah. Because yeah, it's a self-selecting group of um, beautiful nerds out here on our audience. And I, I want to just say to those beautiful nerds, like, please understand that I'm wholeheartedly encouraging everyone listening to get the book and to read it slowly, chew thoroughly, cover to cover. And this podcast, like this is, here's the disclaimer. <laughs> uh, this podcast can in no way be considered a substitute, right? For the depth and breadth of knowledge that's presented in your book. Um, even just the way you organized the material, like the table of contents itself, I really uh, felt clarified thing. Before, before we go into the story of healthy homes, which is where we're going, I'd like to talk a tiny bit more about the story of the book because you have John Banta as one of the authors and he was on the original first edition. Yes, and Dr. Erica Elliott was also an author on the first edition, but she's dropped off. But how did you meet John and Erica? I get one at a time, please pick, pick an order. Okay, we'll start with Erica Elliott. She wrote the foreword to this book kindly. Mm -hmm. She has moved on to writing her memoirs oh my goodness. at this point. And which are very, very good medicine and miracles series. Medicine and miracles. Yes. She was my MD and I was her architect. She was trying to fix what we didn't know what was wrong with me. I got sick oh. basically 10 years earlier and it manifested in a lot of um, lung ailments, oh, so especially. Uh, plus um, getting foggy headed whenever I was around formaldehyde, which back then, if you're on a building site, you were around formaldehyde. Mm -hmm. So this was not going in a good direction. She was didn't know where to look, really. And then um, she became ill from the oh. building she was working in. And she was the first to put together what are chemical sensitivities. I'd never heard of them. She'd never heard of them as a doctor. She had a patient who told her about it. And then when she looked into her building, she found out it was being pesticided once a month and that oh she was receiving bad air through the, the air intake and the air output of this medical building were so close together that when the wind blew in a certain way, her intake, which landed at her desk, was um, sucking in aldehydes from the sterilization. Oh, my goodness. And so, she, so we're doing this house. She realized she was sick. She realized what was wrong with me. And she said, Paula, we've got to do this one differently. And being an architect and just um, concerned about aesthetics, I thought, I'm not a technician. So kicking and screaming, <laughs> we went down this road. And I started to learn and became really fascinated. There wasn't a lot of material out. Uh, John Bauer, who was a pioneer in this field, had his books. And there was one other little tiny book by a guy called Clint. I want to call him Clint Eastwood, but I think that name's been taken. <laughs> uh, good, I think. And uh, that was it. And none of it really resonated with me uh, because the basic idea of how to make a healthy house back then, this is kind of just building science was in its infancy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm was that you use all the regular bad stuff, you do conventional construction, then you put plastic on the inside to prevent the bad stuff from coming into the breathing air. So we all know that uh, plastic on the inside is um, at best a poor solution in a few climates and a terrible solution in many more, but it was all we had to go on. And um, what I discovered was something called building biology, mm -hmm. which I hope we get oh my to goodness, talk about more. Top of the list, yeah. And let's go back and talk about how you met John, John Banta. 
Yeah, he's coming into oh, the I picture. Apologize. Keep, keep going. That's okay. So I learned about this stuff called building biology, and uh, it was translated from German in the 1960s. Biobiology. Uh, it well, got translated in the 90s. So I was one of the earlier students in this country. And John Banta, who I met through the um, healthy home, the burgeoning healthy home community of, of people who are sick trying to figure out what to do, um, he came to Santa Fe and I glommed on to him because he had already taught at the Building Biology Institute. So he was knowledgeable about that as well. And we talked and talked and talked. And uh, Eric and I had already finished her home and we were getting calls from all this before the internet, calls from all over the country, from people who were sick from their homes and didn't know what to do and had heard that we knew what to do. So we could tell people, well, use this paint, use this glue. We tried this, we tried that. And then Erica and I said, let's put this down in a book so we can get back to business in the phone. You know, we can just refer people to something. And I asked John if he, one of the smartest things I ever did in my life was ask John if he would like to be a co-author and he was in. And John's career has taken him through as an industrial hygienist specializing in mold. And so the beauty was he was seeing buildings after they failed. Architects never get to see their building. They get to see them when they're spranking new and the yeah. clients are happy and you come back for dinner or tea and then 10 years later they sell it and you lose track of the building or whatever. And so we could do some reverse engineering knowing where buildings failed to how to make them so they didn't fail. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was the start of a long collaboration. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I find it, um, I don't know, I feel kind of emotional around the idea that um, you as an architecture training did not include the people, the health of the people in your house. And yet I've heard that before as well. Um, you know, you fundamentally, what an architect does, in my opinion, is they select, um, curate, you could say, carefully select and arrange materials so their clients have a certain experience. And uh, yes. that experience, um, you know, as someone who practices in the field, it starts out as a visual experience. It's kind of what people think architecture is about. And then as soon as they get into it, it often ends up being like a, an economic experience too, right? But the, re the reality <laughs> is that it's also a deeply immersive, tactile, intimate, right? Here, here we are in these rooms uh, that we're in, taking air that, from in front of me that I would definitely call not me, and bringing it into my lungs where it goes into my blood and every tissue and cell 12 to 16 times a minute, right? I would certainly call that me. Yeah, so the thousands of pounds of air in the house, it being beautiful too. You know, you mentioned aesthetics and I somehow I'm, I'm trying to blend aesthetics with air quality, <laughs> but yes. air is invisible, <laughs> please. Well, we should all, all architects should take the Hippocratic Oath to first do no first harm. Do no harm. Uh, as an architect, I thought if something was harmful, there's all these agencies like the EPA who would let us know and they would ban it. You know, they'd banned a few things by that time. So I thought, well, if it's on the market, it must be safe. Oh. And, you know, I was that, I was that naive. Mm -hmm. What I discovered though, was beyond non-toxic through building biology, that a building is beauty, of course, beauty is more than skin deep, but that what drives us in a space is visuals are a small part of it. If you go in a home that has been created 
according to the building biology principles, it's a different experience that often you can't quantify. It's about smell. It's about the visuals. It's about sound. It's about the subtle electroclimate. It's about the content of the air. And it's not just does it have chemicals or not. In building biology, nature is the gold standard for a healthy human environment. Yeah. And if you take that, you know, this is the discussion I need to have with building scientists. If you take that air that's outside and you run that same air, say it's good air through ductwork, that's not what comes out the other end exactly. It's altered. Absolutely. The, the ion count is altered, which no one's really talking about or studying. And it's, it's, it's chemical simply, constituency is altered. There's oils and, yeah. yeah. Microbial so I'm all for air exchange, and I understand the need for mechanical air exchange, but I, it does not take the place of creating a home that's resilient without mm. it. So if the power goes down, you still remain healthy in that space. Uh, you might have to retrain yourself to open a window or turn off a light or do all these things that we're... Our buildings are getting smarter, but we're getting a little dumber about how to operate mm -hmm. them. Yeah, absolutely. So Yeah, I, I should, I should yeah. I'd like to mention that uh, as of this recording, I'm living under the heat dome here in Austin, Texas, and I think we're at day 33 or something of over 100 degrees. It's miserable out. It's 106 today, 75 or so degree dew point. And so it's like a reverse blizzard. I mean, I'm isolated in these air-conditioned boxes. Um, I mean, I can go outside and work. I'm, I'm still healthy enough that I can do that, but I, I don't work hard in this heat. And so there are times, you know, wildfire smoke events, there are times where we call upon our homes, which, you know, are so many things, but fundamentally they're shelter and they're, they should mm -hmm. be a, a safe sanctuary for our families and not just in, you know, uh, wildfires or heat or deep cold, but the curating the materials, as you were talking about, that leads to the sight, the sounds, the smells, the a subtle electrical climate. Um, I guess the smells are related to the indoor microbiome, which is... I suppose that's a great way to put it. Yes. Uh, microbial emissions or yeah. something. Um, and and, and I, I was bringing that up because you're saying the, the gold standard for health is nature, right? Our bodies evolved, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand years ago, we started living as this version of Homo sapiens. And... Um, our bodies evolved to be in nature and that what we call the outdoor microbiome, it's also called the old friends microbiome. It's what our body wants. And uh, so this gets into natural building materials later, right? The microbes that live on wood and straw and plaster are going to be much different than the ones that live on steel and glass and concrete. Yes. Um, if you, you know, there are many principles in building biology that, simply you don't have to think about them deeply but in using na nature-based materials they're taken care of can i give you an example please clay plaster or let's just take wood because most buildings have mm -hmm. wood if you take a piece of wood and varnish it here's what you're doing to that piece of wood besides making it shiny and easy to clean a piece of wood is sorptive material, so you're taking away its ability to absorb sound. You're instead making an echo, it an echo mm. object. You're taking away its ability to subtly restore the microclimate because once you've got a synthetic finish on it, um, negative ions will cling to it. 
so you'll offset the the subtle electro climate in a building um, and you'll take away its ability to subtly balance the humidity in a building so there's a you you know um there's a lot to consider about natural materials natural and adultery natural and that's a really really good point and you know, as of this recording, too, we're learning a lot about the carbon impacts of harvesting forests the way we do, um, much higher than we think they are. But that that's another another topic altogether. Um, and in fact, that's one of the things that I bow to you <laughs> about writing this book. It is a large, sprawling, interconnected body of knowledge. And so the path, you wove a path through this, told some really good stories. In fact, you punctuated the end of your chapters with stories about people like yourself who had been frankly been harmed uh, by the built environment inadvertently, I guess you could say, you know, there was no insidious person going, we'll get Paula, but. Yeah. Um, And I want to say something about that in relation to natural materials too. There are people who cannot be around natural materials and how Mm, I describe it Yes. If you're having a heart attack, you don't go to a health spa to get better. But if you're in general good condition, you don't check into the intensive care unit to get even better. (laughs) And so for some of our clients who are um, just simply, they can't be out in nature anymore, either they need a bubble to heal in. It's a different kind of building than uh, the the natural buildings we're talking about. My love is the natural Mm -hmm. buildings. But, um, they, you know, it depends who we're working with, what we have to do. Yeah, these, these healing homes these, uh, for multiple chemical sensitivity and this constellation of symptoms. And, uh, you know, I guess I'd like to comment to listeners for both of us on both of our behalves. And maybe you could add to this, but I have worked with a few dozen clients face to face over many months and years who are living through heartbreak. But what I want to just I want to point out that to listeners, it's like this is very real. And, you know, my neocortex and my personality hear it. And there's something about those interactions that follows deep fissures kind of magically or mysteriously through me. And they create a, a sense of sort of exasperation and even outrage on the way we practice delivering buildings to ourselves as a society that sometimes I really have to hold in check. Yeah. Do you experience that? I mean, I. What I tell myself to keep myself sane all these years is that we're in the prototype Mm -hmm. stage. Can I create something that when someone walks into it, they know they can be better indoors. And that's been my biggest joy is creating the, with my husband, the homes we've created for ourselves and then sharing. That's a great way to say it. So let me tell you a little story of like a rewarding moment. A lot of people who are electromagnetically sensitive have nowhere to go. It's outdoors, it's indoors. Uh, and I had one woman who was very, very sensitive. And I said, come on in and see the house. And I took her into the bedroom. I said, take your shoes off. No one wears shoes in our house, but take your socks off. And she walked in on the earth floor. We have an earth floor in our bedroom. And I switched the kill switch on the wall, which turned off all of the electricity to that room. And she started to cry. Oh. And she started to cry because she felt okay. And it was, um, she didn't. Until that moment, she didn't know it was possible to feel okay indoors. So that's that's a reward for me that makes everything worthwhile. 
to be able to um, share that experience with someone. That's incredible. Yeah, I feel like we could just end right there. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wanted to come back, bring you back to, well, two quick things just for, for listeners. Um, easy to clean, you know, that the varnishing wood, easy to clean. We also make our carpets and our upholstery easy to clean by putting, you know, forever chemicals on it. And we've had some good successes recently with PFAS. But this thing about we're trading in our fundamental well-being for convenience so many times in Ooh. so many ways. So that's one. And, but, and you also mentioned you touched on it, right? The, that you were thinking that somebody in the government is paying attention to what the chemicals we use indoors. Um, and uh, another um, woman that I admire very much is Arlene Bloom. I ho hope to interview her one day. She's the hero. She, She's she a hero. Is a hero. And Over she has sixclasses.org for you guys listening. And I learned about her during the BPA to BPS switch. You know, oh, BPA water bottles aren't good for you. And finally, after decades of, you know, trying to um, convince people, convince legislators to do something, ultimately the manufacturers just switched to a slightly different molecule with the same health impacts. Like, oh. Like even when we finally get one of the tens of thousands of chemicals, you know, kind of put it on the spot and say, this needs to be addressed. They address it in a way that's not effective. There's a long history of regrettable substitutions where they'll take something that's proven to be harmful and they'll substitute something that has almost the same mm -hmm. um, chemical makeup, chemical mm -hmm. makeup, and it simply has not been tested yet. It simply has no bad yeah. track record. It has no good track record. And that happens over and over and over again. Yeah. I think we should get into the sort of what's, what's indoors um, when we go in there. And I, I think of it, I think of it in two, two sections, right? There's better living through chemistry. <laughs> and, you know, that one, I'd put the, the, emblem of a guinea pig there because we are treating ourselves as the guinea pigs. And then the other one is, you know, we're in the microbial age, right? The indoor microbiome. We've all just lived through COVID. Um, you know, this tiny, tiny being that has disrupted the world. How do, how do you think about homes and health impacts, like the categories? How do you, or tell me about homes and health impacts, whatever comes to mind. Well, on the, um, on the most basic level, we can talk about what's making people sick in buildings. That's a great place to start. Um, and there's there's always good news and bad news. When I started in this, um, I almost got sued by the insulation companies because I said formaldehyde was bad. In a fine home building article, and we got um, everyone, the editors, myself, everyone received uh, harsh letters from the National Insulation. Uh, whatever, Nima. saying formaldehyde is not proved to be bad and you need to retract what you said. And so I, I did. I said, yep, uh, formaldehyde is only a carcinogen if you happen to live in California. So I take back what I said. <laughs> you, know, like, um, you facetiously take back what you said, but you took back enough. Yeah, to but that's, well. so we've come a long way in terms of recognizing mm -hmm. and, you know, all you, it's getting formaldehyde free um, insulation is just about a no-brainer now. So some, and the kind of listservs lead has played a key role in 
changing manufacturers to make lesser toxic, lower zero VOC, etc. products. That's the good news. Some bad news is we've done almost no study on semi-volatile mm -hmm. organic compounds, and often they are the replacement for the volatile organic compounds. Yeah. So uh, um, they, that's one. So they're the gift news. that keeps on giving in, in some sense. Almost yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, they're biopersistent. They're in the dust. We get we they get to us usually in a different way, usually through inhalation and accumulation, or uh, or we eat them inadvertently. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't want to dwell on any one chemical because it's such a, a broad or category. But you know, there's other downsides. At, since COVID, it's really cool to add antimicrobials to everything, and not only have they already been proven not to be effective. Uh, you don't see them on an SDS sheet, but if you go to the product product literature, it's they're very proud of the fact that they have antimicrobials. So we're finding doorknobs, countertops, paints, um, you know, so the age of the antimicrobial, the germ phobia is upon us. Yeah. And we, we already know that there's some downsides to trying to kill, you know, the, the war on anything has never succeeded. <laughs> Hatred will never cease through hatred. Yes, I agree. And so we have a war on germs going on that um, we need to take a look at. So that's the chemical thing. When we started this, there was very few um, people, their primary thing was electromagnetic sensitivity uh, because that would have been, you know, from household wiring errors and that kind of thing, which is very controllable. But uh, since the age of smart meters, variable speed motors and... Inverters. Um, Wi-Fi broadcasting and inverters, et cetera, et cetera, that has skyrocketed. And then the mold thing has skyrocketed. Um, is it because we're only seeing the um, the sins of the fathers or visiting upon the sons or however that, that happens, like these buildings that are 30 years old now, uh, we're seeing what how vapor barriers were prescribed 30 years ago are creating mold or what really uh, frame buildings work just fine until we try to make them comfortable. Mm -hmm. Or energy efficient and comfortable. Mm -hmm. it, yes, energy efficient and comfortable. So, and there are some people who are claiming that electromagnetics also have an effect on mold growth. Wow. Dr. Klinghart did some petri dish type testing and found that to be so. So um, chemicals are now a uh, the majority of people who call us now, it's because they're um, mold sensitive or electromagnetically sensitive. And yeah, by the way, we began to react to chemicals once we got sick. So when we're speaking with someone, I always find out what, what made them sick first and know that that's what we need to pay extra attention to. Because sometimes it's someone who's mold sensitive, there may be a place for some antimicrobial. Someone who was poisoned by pesticides, there's no place for that. So it's slight, there's slight nuances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This topic has been on my mind the last few days thinking about this interview and I'm coming back to this feeling of disheartenment, right? The, be, because two reasons for the disheartenment. One is like my, um, and I want to say with great humility, like my perception of the, the vastness and the, the complexity of this field, right? You have myriad health impacts uh, arriving simultaneously on, on people and they, so it's very complex. And then we also have the AEC industry, architecture, engineering, construction industry, which is like a super tanker and it's not going to pivot. Right. You know, and, and you mentioned uh, 
you know, so I guess maybe in a cheerful way, I could say like dust mites, people used to get laughed at for saying dust mites were a problem indoors. And people used to, mold itself was like, oh, of course, mold is everywhere outside. Why would it be a problem inside? And so as a society, we are learning, we are, but meanwhile, people are being harmed and people are, it's, I don't want to keep coming back to my disheartenment, but it's uh, something to work with. When you, you talk to people, I mean, you've had multiple, multiple clients over the years. How do you give them hope and also set their expectations? Because you, you I would assume you can't guarantee they're going to be better. Or I guess you can guarantee they're going to be better, but not well. Talk to me about that, please. <laughs> I can't guarantee that a home is going to fix mm -hmm. somebody. Um, a home can create an environment for them to then do the work in to heal. Um, I can tell them what I learned from my experiences that the body is a miracle in its ability to heal and it wants mm -hmm. to heal. I've had many, many, uh, well, we've had a lot, a lot more successes than we have failures, that's for sure. Uh, and that, so I tell the owner that they are an integral part of the process and must be someone can't do this for them because they're pioneering. And so they're asking for something different than what's out there. And um, they're biologically unique. So their opinion weighs on what's right or wrong is going to weigh very, very heavily how they react to something. And I hope always that they're pursuing other venues for healing besides just building a healthy house, like with the right health practitioners, with the right nutritional information, with the right ability to fast, sauna, cold plunge, whatever the modalities are, but the discipline to do those things. And then often people also, um, it's funny how the brain, we're learning more and more about how the brain is wired. Um, and I, I can tell you a little story Please. here once met someone who is very could not eat strawberries they would die if they ate a strawberry they used to not be allergic to strawberries they spent a summer picking pesticided strawberries and at the end of the summer they were very ill and so why then can they now eat an organic strawberry and get the same symptoms as if it had pesticides on it because the brain has wired those two things together so you know so once you get electric shocks enough from an object, you, you're very careful about touching it again. Your brain is wired to fear touching that. And so there's all kinds of people getting success with, um, uh, you know, neuro-linguistic uh, reprogramming programs. Annie Hopper, is uh, her DNRS program is very popular and has seen some good results. Wow. Um, I've seen other healing modalities and but you're never healing just on a physical level. Healing does not take place on one level. I'm, I'm convinced it takes place on uh, body, mind, mm -hmm. spirit. Mm -hmm. It's integrated and you need them all. And so it's a journey. But I always tell people, if you come out this other end of this um, healthy, not only do you have a very important role, your life's work is cut out for you, um, but you will grow in every dimension and you'll be a different human being who may look back at this horrible experience as one of the biggest blessings yeah. in your life. And, and I, I can say that honestly from the perspective of working with people who've been affected for more than 25 years now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about the evolving practice of building science, right? And it would, it would go, pshaw, pshaw, 
to any terms like body, mind, spirit associated with healthy indoors, healthy indoor environments. And it started out and it's still, I think, mainstream manifestation building science, you know, version one was energy, energy focused, which is pretty darn easy, really. You know, you got the control layers, rain, air, vapor, thermal, and you study fluid dynamics and thermodynamics. And then building science 2.0 is what's happening now is this sort of let's focus on the health of the people in the buildings. Let's focus on the health of the, this thing that we call nature as though we're separate from it uh, and its ecosystems. And I really believe that there's like several more building science 3.0 would be this body of knowledge needs to have an impact in the world. So let's get social science involved. But then there's this, there's this deeper aspect, which is like, as a physicist, I used to be a high energy physicist, boy, oh boy, are we learning that we don't, you know, (laughs) that nature we can't even understand it, right? It's saying there's no room for spirit in physics is just um, closed-minded, you know. Einstein was not of that opinion, I understand. Yes, exactly. But we're um, we're in an age of science, scientism, I'd mm-hmm. say, like the just like church, Catholicism yeah. or, you know, yeah, um, where, you know, if it can be proven. Uh, but you can, you know, I've seen so many counter things both proven depending on who did the testing where and when and who funded yeah. it and all that stuff. It's, you know, it doesn't override or it shouldn't override. Um, your direct experience, it right. And, and just to go to, go to there. What's yeah. your direct experience? What if you feel love or anxiety or whatever, is that really the same as the fMRI of you feeling low? You know, of course not. And, you know, even just at a very basic level, well, at a very basic level, like the, the quantum level, it gets very weird. And at the same time, we can only measure, we used to say dark matter was about half of the, the, the known universe. And now we think it's more like two thirds. So here we are walking around, interacting and measuring one third of what we know exists. And yet, you know, kind of arrogant and cocky about our knowledge and we can do amazing things. I'm going to bring us back. I apologize. I, I took us on that tangent and I'll bring us back. I want to make one quick, put a pin in something that you said. One thing I loved about the book was it has material on how to read safety data sheets and what to look for you know, and beyond. So that, that was a tremendous um, help. Way back in the introduction, you mentioned building biology and you mentioned the principles of building biology. Uh, and during some of our pre-conversations for this, you mentioned that you could possibly like give us some themes to think about. So how would Paula introduce us to building biology? Okay. Um, well, as I said, nature is the gold standard and our buildings are like our third skin. So I always tell my early students um, that you wouldn't wear uh, plastic 24 seven because you know it would, uh, what it would do to your skin, which is your first skin, biggest organ yeah. in your body. So why then would you wrap your building <laughs> in such and expect everyone to be healthy? And when you're, you know, so building biology advocates, like when I read through this material, I was a standardly trained architect and said, no vapor barrier. I said, well, how are you gonna get that through code? How can you not have a vapor barrier? Well, if you're building out of uh, vulnerable materials, you kind of need something to stop rain from getting in or or Mm -hmm. excess moisture. But if you're building with the way we have built for, um, since humans began building out of mass building materials, I'm talking about uh, cold climates, uh, specifically 
hot climates, they don't need much except shade, but um, they always built with mass materials with huge hydrocuffering mm -hmm. capacity that could take anything the climate threw at it. And how do we know that? Because these buildings are seven or 800 years old and they're still there. So um, we know they had something going for them. Building biology started in the 60s in Germany and throughout Europe when they were doing mass rebuilding after World War II. You know, first of all, they turned the chemical factories into peacetime use. So they invented all kinds of new stuff to put on building materials and produce mass produced building materials. And by the 60s, they knew that those new buildings were definitely making people sick. So it wasn't just there was no building scientists to look at this or no, um, it was, you know, it was a country with a socialized, uh, socialized medicine. And it was a multidisciplinary task force that started looking at what makes people thrive in the indoor wow. environment. Uh, and so it was people, there were, there's a wood scientist and uh, Anton Schneider, who became one of the key founders. There, there were architects, there were engineers, there were ergonomicists, there were teachers, there were concerned parents. And, um, you know, they're studious people. And they came up with 25 principles. And so we're not going to, and those principles have evolved over time because our environment has, uh, our man-made environment has forced changes in those principles. Um, but they center around four areas, uh, site planning and community design, electromagnetic radiation safety, which we're not looking at at all in any of our lead or um, other health systems here. Uh, Building Biology Institute has been training people for decades now on how to measure and etc. cetera. Uh, occupant health and well-being. So everything besides electromagnetic safety that makes us healthy and not just healthy, beyond healthy, what makes the space mm. nurture us deeply. And I can, I'd like to address an example of that. And then um, finally, environmental protection, social responsibility, and energy efficiency have always uh, been a part of building biology. Could you read those five again one more? Please. Sure. Site and community design, uh, electromagnetic radiation safety. And that includes uh, uh, very subtle things like geopathic stress and things like cell phone towers now, which weren't <laughs> around when it was formulated, of course. Occupant health and well-being. And I want to stress an expanded version of well-being that isn't in our mainstream anywhere else. And then um, grouping together environmental protection, social responsibility, and energy efficiency. Okay, beautiful. Okay, yes, please tell us about well-being. So, there, you know, my experience was I took all this in and I didn't really understand it, but we said, okay, let's build a home based on these principles. And we did as much as we could. Our walls were clay and straw, our woods were unfinished. We had earth floors. We had a masonry heater as a major heat source. We had um, passive solar. Uh, it resulted in a home in Santa Fe that didn't need any additional heating or cooling except a fire once, a, you know, in a masonry heater once a day for an bake hour. Bake yourself a potato uh, once a day. Because it passes. Or bake some bread. <laughs> yeah. And then um, one of my big disappointments w was to find out that we couldn't even uh, get LEED certification because we didn't have an efficient air conditioner because we didn't need one. Um, so that was that was eye-opening. It was a magical climate in Santa Fe where you can do these things. Of course, both a building climate and 
and the diurnal swings and all that. But beyond that, um, when you came into the house, the feel was different than any other house I'd been in in North America and very similar to the older buildings I'd been in in Europe. And I spent, I have spent the last, you know, that was 25 years ago, the last 25 years dissecting the principles of building biology so I could teach it to, to my students at the Institute. I've been a teacher there for the last 18 or so. So I'm going to take a simple thing that I had no understanding of, but color and pattern in accordance with nature was one of the building biology principles. So in nature, there's lots of color and there's lots of pattern, but like a snowflake, there's never any repetition in the pattern or like a chicken and hens uh, garden, you know, with those cat, those little sweet cacti, they create an incredible pattern that's very attractive to us. But when we look closely, there's no repetition. Like, you know, like the universe is built like a snowflake, right? With infinite variety. And the same is true of color. So if you take a leaf, it might be a green leaf, and you might even have a paint color named after the eucalyptus leaf or, or whatever it is. But if you look carefully, if you look through a microscope or look just very carefully, you're not going to see one color. You're going to see uh, hundreds of colors. So now... What have we done with that? We, when we come indoors, anything man-made, uh, you know, we're getting, we're getting better at this. But the first time I saw a fake stone tile, I thought it was marvelous. And a client, so did a client, and he did his whole, all of his floors for it. And when I walked in, my stomach sank because my brain instantly could see the patterns, the repetitive pattern. My brain could pick it up on a level that, that, um, it took me a while to figure it out visually, but my brain knew right away. And it's the same thing. So that's um, pattern in accordance with nature. As soon as we run it through a machine, uh, we start to do a repetition. Um, and paint, if you take paint and look at it through a microscope, it's one color. So it might be called autumn breeze or ocean tremble or what, you know, whatever name, name they've given it. But it's just, it's a, yeah. Uh, everything has a nature name, but it's a, a monocolor. So compare that to um, plaster, like the walls in this room are plastered that you're, you see behind me. And we've got mica in the plaster. And we've got um, natural pigments. And if you look at that under, you know, just look at it carefully, you're seeing texture, hues, patterns. It's moving. It's alive. And um, that's what we grew up in, in nature. And what we have done in our built environments through manufactured products is dull it's something dulling and um disquieting to the human soul but we don't know that because we have you know most north americans have never you know maybe they've gone to europe but they've never been in indoor environments that were any different than that so the, some of them all to say some of these principles are subtle uh, i'd say about half of them are now mainstream lead and been adopted and the other half are just out there floating around in building biology and um, I've been really adamant, you know, uh, if uh, once in a while building biology advocates want to jump on the bandwagon and do a point system. And I'm always saying no, because, you know, then there's such a thing as low-lying fruit. If you're looking at something holistically, you've got to look at it holistically and you've got to consider the whole and not, and we're so achievement oriented and point oriented and let's get a high score, let's get a plaque but that's not how nature works. And so 
anyhow, I'm, uh, I'm, the more I learn, the humbler I get about how much there is to learn and how much we don't know. And, um, but the, the bottom line of uh, Anton Schneider told my husband, my husband went to Germany to learn about this. That was how I met my husband was I read an oh, article about him and knew he knew about this stuff. And I, it was where my passion was. But he uh, and Anton Schneider spoke very little English and Robert spoke very little um, German. And so he'd get, he was like a little grasshopper. He'd get one bead a day, you know, one little jewel a day out of him. And in the end, he said, to the extent that a home is built of unadulterated natural materials, to that extent, will it nurture your health? Unadulterated is a key word in there. Yeah. Yes, it is. And so the, the bottom line is you don't have to understand everything to um, yeah. reintroduce nature into your home and get the benefits. So that's a, a yeah. pretty, mm-hmm. that's a, that should be a To the extent comfort. the home is built of unadulterated natural materials, to that extent, it will nurture you. Something like that. The last part of the sentence I didn't get written down. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then there's a, another thing that I, you know, I, after we built this home and after I was asked to teach for the Institute and realized that, boy, I better brush up. You know, all I read was German English text several years ago. I was discovering some pretty amazing things. Um, and one of them, another quote that I use a lot was that there's almost always a direct correlation between the biological compatibility of a given material and its ecological performance. Wow, that's all. We say that again, please. There's almost always a direct correlation between the biological compatibility of a given material, in this case, and its ecological performance. So, you know, that's easy to understand. The less adulterated something is when taken from nature, the less processes is it come from. In essence, the less it's embodied energy, the less it's carbon footprint, but also the more it has the ability to nurture our health. Yeah, that's beautiful. So the, yeah, these are like in a complex world where we know we don't know. These little um, touchstones are very valuable for my Yeah, sanity. yeah, they're like life preservers. <laughs> you know, yeah. rings and swimming. Exactly. You know, I didn't, I didn't intend yeah. for this conversation to be as philosophical as is ending up being, and I love it that it is. Um, one of the things up for me is what I said earlier about this illusory separation we've made between humankind and nature, right? You know, because you have this biological compatibility and ecological performance and um, to the extent that it's unadulterated natural materials. Well, we are unadulterated natural materials, right? And, you know, until we adulterate. <laughs> we do, yeah. And <laughs> and and yet, like at a very simple level, this is someone, you know, I'm studied I've studied astrophysics and basic physics and quantum physics. And there's a simple truth that I feel like is deeply spiritual too. Simple reality. We are all always part of all that is. And so you can just bring that down to Gaia, you know, bring that down to planet Earth. It's like I am part of the earth, obviously. Every molecule in me, right? And and my health is like my, you know, what is it called? My genome, my chromosomes mixed to m- mixed with my expono, exposome, my environmental uptake and exposures. And um, this this artificial separation between homes and nature, you know, um, man and nature. I'm, I don't know. Right now, I feel kind of what's alive in me is like that that artificial distinction between man and nature. 
wherever that came from, is uh, the root issue. I'm going to try to make that the end of our philosophical departure for at least for now, (laughs) Paula, because your book is not a philosophy book. It is a totally practical how-to guide. It is a it's like Yoda leading you along the path, right? It puts the path out in front of you. How would you like to talk about your book? How would you like to present the value of your book? Or how do you expect it to be used? Yes, please, anything on this theme. I don't expect people to read it cover to cover unless they're, you know, they have a problem with insomnia or something and need something very... No, I'm just stubborn um, that way. I, they, I started at the front page and read everything. Oh, I love you. <laughs> But it, as, as it says in our byline, it's a practical guide for architects, designers, builders, and homeowners. So it's in very approachable language. Yeah, if I noticed that. If a homeowner can't understand what we're saying, then we have failed. And uh, But, you know, on the other hand, it's, it doesn't want to be kindergarten to a building scientist or a builder. The, these are the material choices that... that you know, so we we name names. Yeah, it was very specific. This paint, this finish, this type of concrete. Yeah, yeah. Or, or the following paints do not contain. Or we can't always say what everything contains, but these are ones that are better than most of them out there. And um, we we also do this for our consulting projects. And usually, you know, you'll notice the lists are pretty long because we have a lot of great choices now. So that's one area: is what products should we use? How can we, uh, another, you know, the introductory chapters are, how can we tell if a product is um, toxic? Well, this is the process that we use, and you can learn to do this too. Usually people see what's involved and they say, oh, can we consult, consult with you? Because it takes a lot of time to vet all these products. But also, um, what are the relationships of everybody in a project? Uh, how, you know, what, what are the basic rules a contractor has to follow? What is an owner's responsibility? What results can we expect? What expectations can we have? What's involved in doing a house that's different than the mainstream house? And how can we make this go smoothly? So those are the upfront uh, chapters. These are the main categories of what we need to do better than how it's being done. Then it breaks down into various, you know, the practical plastic wood, all of the um, categories you would see in an architectural spec. And then... um, things that the builder is not usually involved in, but can impact the environment just as well. How do you choose the right appliances? Mm-hmm. What kinds of things do you do? So your house, if you're, when your dishwasher breaks, you don't have to get yeah. a moldy house. Um, what kind of devices are out there? How do you select furniture that's going to be healthier? How do you, um, what choices does a homeowner have to make? How does a homeowner maintain a home? What should the builder provide to the homeowner so that they know enough to maintain the home? Where are their warranties? What are the maintenance items? Where do they need to change filters? Um, because we, we all know that many homes fail because people uh, don't know what to do with them. The only thing I've seen with less instruction is parenting. <laughs> you know, you get this bundle and no one tells, there's no manual whatsoever in any language. But um, yeah. You know, kids are more resilient than houses. Yeah. And I I don't want to sound like a scratch record, but honestly, like I did read the book cover to cover. I'm stubborn that way. And I I was, I was impressed at multiple levels, right? The information, some of it wasn't new to me, but it often depixelated, but the way you picked a very effective and thorough path 
from start to finish. And yet you covered so much, like you just said, like the, the relationships on the project team. And I want to be clear to listeners that this book, I mean, it goes through concrete and foundation systems, wall systems, adhesives and sealants, you know, lumber, finished carpentry, I'm kind of thinking, plastics, insulation, doors and windows, exterior finishes. You go through bup, 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 interior finishes, appliances, and then you go through how to maintain a home, how to furnish a home, um, how to, yeah. So it's amazing. What is it, like 300 and some pages? It's like... Uh, Almost 400 in yeah. small print. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's, there's figures in it. Yeah, it's big Do now. you plan to do a fifth edition? Just off the... No, but I didn't plan to do a second, <laughs> third, or fourth. We always thought, well, by the time this book goes out of date, this is going to be such mm-hmm. common knowledge that we won't need another one. And I, st- I, I dearly, I want to retire. So I dearly, dearly hope that and hold that vision that, um, that, this will be good for a long time and that uh, mm-hmm. it'll just keep getting better out there. Yeah, I like that. And that someone else, someone young and enthusiastic with tons of energy will step in. And, and they are. They're and, happy. It's um, happening, right? It's starting to happen. And I think, well, two quick thoughts. Like one is the, you know, knowing the story, having been followed them, like I guess I could call it the mold story, which is huge for about 20 years. I can remember when people weren't sure that it was a thing. And now it is certainly a thing and it's well known. And there's the, the various mechanisms and the various aspects are very well known. And so, yes, that took 20 years. Your first edition was out 20 some years ago. I can see how you thought that. And I also know that what happens in the real world, the outer world, like a, like a river is a flow system and a log comes across it. And at first it blocks the flow. But then the, the pressure builds up, the water accumulates and the pressure builds up more and more. And then eventually push, it pushes it out of the way and the river flows again. Or maybe the river even redistributes itself downstream and picks a new river valley. Um, and I feel like right now you and I and countless people in the industry feel in their heart of hearts the pressure building up, the call for change, the, the sensible, rational, yes, we need to stop building based on visual spatial economics and financial economics, please. Uh, well, we're not alone in the building um, design and building industries because yeah. um, the same things that are happening with us are happening in the food industry. I always think the food industry is a little ahead of us. Oh my gosh, what an apt metaphor, yes. And, um, you know, the, the clothing industry, um, you know. Fast fashion. Um, mm-hmm. every, every aspect of our survival, food, clothing, shelter, we're up against the same enormous, um, we should we should have turned left when we turned right or should have kept going straight ahead or something. But it's not, a lot of it isn't working big time and a lot of people are looking at alternatives. Well said. Who would have ever thought that farmers markets would have become what they've become? I think industry would have maybe tried to stop them had they mm-hmm. known. Mm-hmm. Uh, they spoke to a, a resonance, a deep resonance with us with members of society that wasn't clear that it was there. Yeah. So I think we, we, we're getting philosophical again. We've got to, we've got to get practical. I agree. And and I think to make this very clear, and and we're actually approaching an hour now uh, to make it very clear to, to you listeners, this book is a very practical guide. It's a, it is, that's a great word for it is your guide along this path. And 
it's actionable, right? And homeowners listening, or actually I could say this way, anyone who lives in a home listening, this book has probably got something for you in it. And more than that, you have power. Homeowners have power. Like the things you ask for, the things you request of this industry are either going to keep it stuck or keep it status quo or help it evolve. And I know that for a fact. I've been on many teams where and it's, it's frankly, Paula, it's why I am in residential, high performance residential, because it just takes a committed owner, small group, husband and wife, typically to say, this is my value preference system. Let's go with this. And I actually want to make a quick, quick comment on that. Mm-hmm. And then hear kind of your thoughts around this, because like we do electrical design and we have designed uh, kill switches. We put that in as an electrical engineer. We design these kill switches. And yet, though we know how to do it, we ask our owners, we say, please consult, you know, with a, like Ora Miller or someone like him, electromagnetic health on that. And then, he, you know, the EMF focus, the, the measures for your home, we as your engineer are not doctors. We are not specialists in this. We want you to hire a consultant that gives us instructions to follow, and then we can implement them for you. Similarly for enclosures, similarly for mechanical systems. How do you relate to that? We do the same. Uh, no one can know everything about everything. I often advise our clients to have an EMRS specialist, uh, electromagnetic radiation specialist on the team and uh, building envelope specialist. We're not building scientists. We, we lear- get to learn a lot because um, we understand the importance mm-hmm. and we get to hang mm-hmm. out with them. But um, our focus is other parts of the building. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it, it takes a village. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. And I also think that you know my insurance is very clear that I shouldn't give medical advice. Because I've had clients say, well, you've done it for other owners. Just do the EMF sensitivity stuff on my house too. And I said, well, then I'm taking action on behalf of, you know, of, of a body of knowledge that I really don't have specialization in. I don't really own that. Okay. Well, um, I think we've had actually had a pretty good spot for any final thoughts or any, uh, well, maybe I could, if I could ask you just to go personal for one minute and, and you can say no, and we'll just edit this out. But um, I've already told you my age. So <laughs> what your shoe so size, Paula? No, no. Um, so you were sensitive to formaldehyde, and you said you got sick, and then you actually added an adjective said very sick. How long did that take? How long did it take to get sick, or how long did it take to get better? <laughs> Both. Do you want to hear my story? Kind a of. A little yes. bit about. Yes, please. I would like uh, to hear your story. I moved into a brand new. Um, home and it was a manufactured home because we were living on a we were living in an ashram and we didn't own the property, so um, brand new. And the first winter when we closed it up, I got pneumonia. I'd never I was really healthy, and then the wow. second winter I got pneumonia and pleurisy, and then every winter after that double pneumonia. You know, my lungs kept being affected. We moved from the home. Oh my god! By that time. And I never even knew, I never made any relationship between the two till after I studied it. It took me 10 years to find out why I was getting sick because doctors aren't, you know, doctors were also not trained to ask environmental questions of their, and they didn't do house calls, of course. And so it was just, um, 
So I did not find out why I was having these uh, elevated symptoms, especially when I was around formaldehyde. But formaldehyde is a universal, it sensitizes people to other chemicals. So I, was a multi, I had multiple chemical sensitivities. And I actually, when, I, when there was testing that developed and I could be tested, I remember going home from the testing and just crying out of joy because there was a cause that I could put my finger on that there was something I could do about it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, wow. you know, I, I wouldn't say my lungs are especially the strong, they are, they're still my weak point, mm. but um, uh, you know, because uh, formaldehyde actually works on lung architecture, it, it alters it um, and bodies heal. So I don't even want to know what's in there in many ways it wouldn't help me. But so after it was 10 years later that I met Dr. Elliot and we were doing her house. 10 years. It was 10 years. And I just, um, I'm sorry. Never made the connection. Once I understand it, I finally understood why when I went in a shopping mall, I felt bad. And that's because if you took the formaldehyde levels in shopping malls, when they sized everything with formaldehyde back then, it, it was elevated. And, uh, what wasn't understood at that time, you know, there were standards set, but once someone is sensitive, you know, they, uh, I think HUD had a, finally set a standard of three parts per million. Well, someone who's sensitive can react severely at 0.01 parts per million. Mm -hmm. So the sensitivity element was not understood. Oh, 300 well. times that, less. Wow. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's how, how I became ill. And then how I became well is I was really lucky. I had a doctor who was into alternatives and she was sick. So I just did everything she did for several years, trying to get better, which involved all kinds of alternative modalities, avoidance, of course. So it was a multidisciplinary approach to getting better as well. Mm -hmm. So that's my personal story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, thank you so much, Paula. And uh, listeners, the book is Prescriptions for a Healthy House, 4th Edition. The full title goes, A Practical Guide for Architects, Builders, and Homeowners. In so doing, you, Paula, you have really done a great service and summarized a large, sprawling, complex body. So thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, oh, thank you, Christoph. I've totally enjoyed this hour, and I so appreciate you getting the word out about the book's existence. Yeah, and, and of course, the underlying um, body of knowledge and the actions that it can you know, help people help themselves. So thank you again, Paula. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you next time.